Hello, everyone, and welcome to this part two edition of the NFL Free Agency Recap and Review Podcast Series here on After Final Whistle, after the Final Whistle, excuse me. I am your host, Brad Clear. First episode, as you have seen or listened to, available on Apple Podcasts or podcast.com. Talked about the Dolphins signings, Tom Brady going to the Buccaneers, Stephon Diggs being traded to Buffalo, and DeAndre Hopkins being traded to Arizona. This part two episode, let's not waste any time. Let's get right into it. First thing I wanted to talk about on this episode is the current options available to the New England Patriots as far as the future of their quarterback position. The Patriots are the only team out there that at this point is really in need of finding a starting quarterback because the Chargers were the other team thought to be in that market, but they publicly had stated they were fully confident in Tyrod Taylor being their bridge quarterback uh, to a potential young quarterback uh, in the draft. And as we've seen with their offseason maneuvering, they filled their need uh, on the offensive line, signing Brian Bulaga, trading Russell Okung for Trey Turner, signing Chris Harris, having a need at defensive tackle. They filled that by signing Linval Joseph. I really like the offseason the Chargers had, and Basically, between tagging Henry, signing Bulaga, trading for Turner, signing Linval Joseph, signing Chris Harris, re-signing Austin Eckler, they now, they have Tyrod Taylor as the veteran bridge quarterback, which he's great in the role of, and now have the ability at that sixth overall pick, or maybe by moving up one or two spots if they need to or want to, they have the ability to really go into this draft and get themselves a young quarterback for the long term. And... I would suspect that they probably end up with Justin Herbert in this draft. And so you look at their offseason, they filled needs on the offensive line, defensive line, nice signing with Harris, kept Hunter Henry, kept Austin Eckler at a reasonable price. The only thing left for them to do is get that young quarterback. They're not in the market for a veteran starting quarterback. So that leaves the Patriots alone in this pursuit. And I am. I know Jarrett Stidham has been publicly stated that they're confident in him. They believe in him. I, I'm not a believer in Jarrett Stidham. I think it's very difficult to get behind a fourth-round pick as a long-term answer at the quarterback position. You know, from what we've seen of him, I have not been all that enthused. And I don't see a way, unless your desire is to, you know, be a non-playoff team, and get a good draft pick or to potentially be in the mix for a young quarterback in this coming draft in 2021, which I think is unlikely because they have an incredible defense. You know, I don't think Jarrett Stidham is a viable solution there. And what the Patriots now have is they have a really unique situation where Cam Newton is about to be released. Jameis Winston is still on the market. Andy Dalton is still out there on the market. If they want to go and trade a mid-round pick, bring Andy Dalton into the system... They can do it. They can go out there and try. This is never going to happen, but for entertainment value, man, how great would it be if they could get Jameis Winston in there and you'd have Bill Belichick coaching Jameis Winston, Josh McDaniels, Jameis Winston. Oh, that would be incredibly entertaining. But really, to me, I think the best course of action here for the New England Patriots is taking a flyer on Cam Newton. Now, Cam Newton last year, before he went down for the season, he really looked like he was playing hurt. He looked unhealthy. He looked washed, but he himself is not washed. He, to me, looked like he was someone dealing with injuries. Cam Newton 
you know, I we can reference his MVP season. I don't think that player, that level of player is still there. But I think a healthy Cam Newton brings with him a lot of upside that the Patriots, I think, in their situation right now, looking for a starting quarterback, if you could go out there and get Cam Newton in there on a one-year deal, why wouldn't you take advantage of that? If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's not a long-term commitment. But if it works out and he's half of the Cam Newton we've seen in his prime years, then you've hit a gold mine right there. And you can win games and make the playoffs with that quarterback. So I think it is very possible we see them trade for Andy Dalton. But I think to me, a realistic and I think what should be the route they take is taking a one-year flyer on Cam Newton because there is no better situation for a quarterback looking for a job right now than the Patriots. Because you go to the Patriots, if you're one of these veteran quarterbacks available, you're going to have the starting job. There's really not any other team open out there looking for a veteran quarterback for a starting position. There is no other team. So I think there would be a discount involved in the sense that with so limited of a market and suitors, I think you get Newton in there on a one-year deal at a relatively low amount. I think with Dalton, you know, with Foles getting traded for a fourth, with the Bengals not really having a ton of other suitors unless a team trades for him to be their backup, you could get Dalton for a fourth, I think, at this point. And I just don't see the Jameis Winston thing happening, even though it would be entertaining. So I look at the Patriots and I see there is more upside in Cam Newton than any other option. And you get him in there on a one-year deal, if it works, great. If it doesn't, oh well. But I like that upside, and I like the idea of Cam Newton working with Bill Belichick. I also think that it's reasonable to think that the Patriots should consider trading for a young quarterback such as Josh Rosen. Now, I was a huge, outspoken proponent of Josh Rosen. You know, not great when you come into the Miami Dolphins, you get beaten out for the starting job by Ryan Fitzpatrick. Even still, Josh Rosen was a top 10 draft pick, and... You know, I know it's within the division, so maybe this is unlikely, but I can't imagine it would cost that much in terms of draft capital to trade for Josh Rosen at this point. I'm not saying it's realistic, but something along those lines where you trade for a young quarterback in a situation where they're probably not going to be the answer and you get them for a low draft capital return, say a fourth round pick or lower, and you take a flyer and you have a quarterback room, a Cam Newton a young quarterback that you acquire in Jarrett Stidham, who's also a young quarterback, who, as I mentioned, I'm out on. I don't think Washington picks Tua. I think they should, as I've said in prior episodes. In that circumstance, I think the Patriots would be smart to pursue a trade for Dwayne Haskins. Should that option become available if they pick Tua? Again, I don't think it will happen, but if it does, I think that would be a smart route to look at. And if they wanted to, they could sign Cam Newton and trade for Andy Dalton. If it's only going to cost you cap space and a fourth round pick, take a shot on both. Why not? Now, the Patriots cap situation right now, it's pretty tight per over the cap. As I'm sitting here right now recording this, they have less than a million in cap space. You know, I thought that them tagging Joe Thune was a surprise. I thought he would be a tag and trade candidate. I'm not sure that is the case. So they'd have to find a way in some form to make this work. But I think that Cam Newton should be the route pursued by the New England Patriots at that quarterback position. Now, moving away from the Patriots, let's look at the Indianapolis Colts. Chris Ballard and the Indianapolis Colts really making the splashiest 
move that he has made during his tenure, going away from their typical route of conserving cap space and uh, trading down in the draft and maximizing the value of their draft capital. They are the kings of the second round. Never pick in the first, always trade down. They kill it in the second round in the draft. But this year, they go out and they trade the 13th overall pick in the draft to San Francisco for DeForest Buckner. And as a result, we'll sign DeForest Buckner to a four-year extension worth $84 million with $39 million of that guaranteed. 39.378 to be exact. Now, the way the contract is structured uh, for this DeForest Buckner contract, they really can have sort of an out after three years. So... So for this season, obviously, it does not matter, but if it were to be a cut, it would be $39 million in dead money with negative cap ramifications of a cap penalty of $16 million in year being cut prior to year two, $60 million in dead money with $1 million in cap savings. I think this deal is going to run through 2022. His cap number in 20 is 23.378. His cap number in 21 is $17 million. His cap number in 22 is $16 million. After 2022, that $16 million cap number jumps up to $19.75 million in year four and $20.25 million in year five. There would be no dead money if cut before 22, 23, or 24, uh, with the savings being exactly what the cap numbers I just mentioned are for their respective years. To me, I look at it, I think this deal runs through 2022. Because after that point with the $16 million cap number, which is going to be a bargain, at that point it bumps up to 19.75 and 20.25. So at that point, that's where we could see a potential cut, a potential restructure. Um, But I think that what we are looking at with this extension, um, causing it to be a five-year deal, four-year extension onto one year, so it's a five-year deal, I think what we are looking at is this deal as is, stays as is through 2022, which would get the total money paid out to be $56 million over three years. And then after that three-year period ending in 2022, that's when it all gets reevaluated. Now, let's look at DeForest Buckner, the player, and the Colts situation. The Colts had a desperate need to add major talent on the interior of their defensive line. DeForest Buckner is an elite-level interior defensive lineman, a top-three interior defensive lineman in the NFL. In the last two years, including the playoffs, DeForest Buckner has 22 sacks. He is an absolute beast in the interior of your defensive line. Now, the thing about this with the Colts is that, yes, you're finally taking advantage of the massive amount of cap space at your disposal— doing so with a largely young team on rookie contracts all around you, so it allows you the ability to go out and spend a $21 million per year extension on DeForest Buckner without real concern. But, to me, trading the 13th overall pick and then giving out an extension for a $21 million a year four-year deal, that's a lot of value to give up. And I understand that Buckner is an absolute beast, one of the three best players at his position in the league. But I think that the Colts, in my opinion, would have been better off pursuing the route of keeping all their draft capital and pursuing Javon Hargrave, who signed with the Eagles three years, $36 million, $29 million guaranteed. 
looking at Hargrave, Hargrave, of course, is not as good as DeForest Buckner. DeForest Buckner is an elite-level player. But Javon Hargrave, 10.5 sacks over the last two years, 98 pressures in his four years as a Steeler, 14.2% pressure rate, third in the NFL, only behind Aaron Donald and Chris Jones at that interior defensive lineman position. So to me, if you're the Colts, and I understand that Buckner is an absolute force, and there are very few players in the entire league better than him at the interior defensive lineman spot, but in Javon Hargrave, you still would have had a player who was an elite-level pass rusher from the interior, which the Colts desperately needed, and you could have kept the 13th overall pick. And when I look at the Colts' situation, you know, I don't normally advocate for trading up in the draft. I'd rather pursue the route that the Colts do and trade down and mass a lot of second-round picks, give yourself more swings, uh, more hits, more bites at the apple, so to speak. However, and I said this before in a previous episode, I think that this year, this was the opportunity for the Colts with their pick being 13th. They're normally not going to be the 13th overall pick level of a team. Having the 34th pick and having the 44th pick I think this could have been the year where you could have justified trading up to try to get yourself into position to pick Tua, because I know they signed Philip Rivers on a one-year deal for $25 million and went all-in on this year with the Buckner move and that, but at a certain point, before all these rookie contracts run out, I think they need to definitively have, definitively have a young, long-term franchise quarterback in place so that they, they can definitively say, all right, here's our window with a young, cheap quarterback. Therefore, we know the period of time in which we can spend in terms of cap, in terms of aggressively pursuing the draft, this is the period we can spend aggressively and fill or surround our quarterback and fill our offense and defense with lots of weapons. And I think the longer they wait on getting that franchise quarterback, the more they diminish their ability to ultimately become that championship level team that they should be and have the chance to be with the talent that they've amassed. So... Now, on the contrary, you can say with the fact that they have the 34th and 44th pick that it's okay, you can stomach, and it's okay to lose the 13th pick when you're getting such an elite-level player at a position of need back. But I think, to me, I'd rather have Javon Hargrave on a 3-for-36 or so deal and whoever at pick 13 or trading down from pick 13 to amass more draft capital, add more young talent to the team, I'd rather do that than go all out for DeForest Buckner. That's not a slight on DeForest Buckner, that's just where I think the value lies in this situation. Now, what the DeForest Buckner acquisition and Phillip Rivers acquisition indicate is the Colts are kind of going in, going all in for this season. Phillip Rivers on a one-year deal for $25 million, I like that they did not go two years on that deal. I kind of think Rivers has one more year in him. He looked kind of washed last year. I understand he had a very bad offensive line in front of him. I know a lot of those interceptions came towards the end of games, but he still looked like an aging quarterback last year, turned the ball over a pretty good amount. And you you have to surround him with a lot of good weapons. And they have T.Y. Hilton and Paris Campbell they picked in the second round last year. I, I don't know how much of a difference maker, unless surrounded by elite-level weapons, Phillip Rivers can be. Now, of course, he's going to a team now in the Colts who have a very good offensive line. They have a great offensive line. Their defense, now at DeForest Buckner, is absolutely stacked. So this is a team stacked on defense with a very good offensive line. 
I just don't know how good Rivers is. But with those circumstances of a good defense to aid him, not have them playing from behind, having a good offensive line so he's not running around, being pressured all game, this will allow us to really see if Phillip Rivers can still be a difference-making quarterback. I'm not convinced that he is. I think the Colts, though, I, I like that they're going all in right now. You know, I think we saw that the Texans made themselves worse. Uh, the Titans had a great year last year, but can Ryan Tannehill replicate the season he had last year? I don't know. It's going to be pretty difficult to do so. So the Colts see an opportunity. I just think that they could have done a little bit better, better in a value sense by spending less on Hargrave and keeping that 13th pick. And who knows at that 13th pick? You know, maybe Derek Brown or Javon Kinlaw is there, and you could take one of them on the interior defensive line. You can't bank on that to fill your need, but maybe they were there. But to me, with such a high pick, with how great they are at finding value in the second round of the draft, I think that would have been a very good spot for them to trade down and amass more draft capital, not just in this year's draft, but in next year's draft as well. Now, looking at this from the San Francisco 49ers standpoint, the Niners basically had to choose between Eric Armstead and DeForest Buckner. Now, in a vacuum, you take Buckner every time, right? He's a better player, that stronger presence on the interior. But if you can get Eric Ar- Eric Armstead on a less on a cheaper deal and get the 13th overall pick on the draft for a team that is only going to get more expensive moving forward, a team that is devoid of draft capital in the second, third, fourth round area in this draft, you give yourself a premium pick where at that spot you can add a major difference maker on a cheap contract, or you can trade down and amass needed draft capital in this draft or add more for next year. You need cheap players that are high-impact players for this team moving forward. This is a team that's going to get more expensive moving forward. You have to have these difference-making players from the draft. And this is a unique opportunity where this Super Bowl-level team Jimmy Garoppolo makes that throw to Emmanuel Sanders. They win the Super Bowl. This is a Super Bowl-level team, and they're going to be able to add a 13th overall pick-level prospect, whether that's a wide receiver like a CeeDee Lamb or a Jerry Judy or a Henry Ruggs to add another playmaker alongside a Debo Samuel now that Emmanuel Sanders is gone for, and is a member of the New Orleans Saints. They could fill that interior defensive line spot now that was previously filled by DeForest Buckner, they could fill that now with Derek Brown or Javon Kinlaw should they be there at 13. They can reap the benefits of trading down from pick 13 and add some picks in the second round, in the third round, maybe adds a first for next year. Who knows? The point is this. The Niners now have the 13th pick and they have the 31st pick. After that, they don't have a lot of draft capital in this draft. So the 13th pick gives them an incredible opportunity to pull a move similar to the Seahawks did last year where they keep trading down, amass a ton of picks, and get a lot of quantity of young players in or to get a true difference maker on a rookie deal at that 13th pick. And for a team that's going to keep getting more expensive, that's of a lot of value. Now, looking specifically at Eric Armstead's contract, Armstead, in this new contract, signed a five-year deal for $85 million with $45.85 million guaranteed. Looking at the yearly payouts, dead cap figures, and cap savings, they can start to get cap savings after the 21 season prior to the 22 season. If they cut him then, they would be taking on a $16.5 million dead money hit, but saving $3.5 million towards the cap. 
Prior to 2023, we see a large increase. They would save $10.24 million towards the cap, take on $11.5 million in dead money. They, If he gets to 2024, I think we're going to see a cut here. Obviously, dead money of $6.5 million, but would get cap savings of $16.76 million. So, looking at this deal for Armstead, I think we're looking here at what ends up being a three- or a four-year deal. Obviously, the five years now added on as part of an extension. The 2025, the cap number would only be $1.5 million. Dead money would only be $1.5 million with no cap savings or cap penalty. I think what we're looking at is this. From 2020 moving forward, I think this deal gets through 2022 at least. 2023, there's a good amount of cap savings. 2024, the cap savings versus dead money is a large difference. So by 2024, I think we'll see sort of a cut or a restructure or some sort of alteration to the contract moving forward because obviously he's not playing on that figure in 2025. Um, so I think we're looking here at at least a four-year deal. It could be three, but I think we're looking at at least four. Armstead, you know, Armstead had a very good season last year and he played at a very high level that he did not play at in prior years um, as a member of the 49ers. Last year in the 49ers, he had his career-high totals in sacks, in total hits, in hurries, and he had his highest PFF grade of his entire career all last year. He has not played at that sustained elite level that someone like DeForest Buckner was able to do. So there is the risk in the sense that perhaps he was a bit of a one-year wonder in the sense that maybe he's not the level of player he was last year in every single year moving forward. But again, there's an out after three years, there's an out after four years in this contract, and if you look at it, you could have gone for DeForest Buckner at a four for 84 extension, and then gotten whatever comp pick you would have gotten, a third round pick, comp pick, for Eric Armstead signing elsewhere, or you could get Eric Armstead at a five for 85 figure, 17 million a year figure, and get the 13th pick in the draft. And when you have to choose between Armstead and Buckner, because you can't pay everybody, as I mentioned, I think they went with the more valuable route. And I think also it's interesting where, you know, the 49ers drafted DeForest Buckner at the, I want to say, seventh overall pick in the draft. He was on the team for a long period of time. And then when it came time for the big contract, they traded him for the 13th pick in the draft. So you get a seventh overall pick who produces at an elite level on a rookie contract, and then before the second contract, turn him into the 13th overall pick in the draft and repeat the cycle. So I think that's great value for the 49ers. I think it's good asset work. And although you'd rather have Buckner than Armstead, and there are concerns on whether Armstead can be the level of player he was last year, every year consistently moving forward, you take Armstead in the 13th pick over Buckner in a comp third. Save a little bit of money, get a difference maker on a rookie contract. So I really like this move for the 49ers. I think it's a unique situation they put themselves in being able to add such a high-level rookie contract difference maker in the draft while being a Super Bowl-level team. And for the Colts, you know, I think the value is a bit much. I understand it because they have two high-quality seconds, so that alleviates the loss of the 13th pick. But I think they could have gone for someone like Javon Hargrave, saved money, kept the 13th pick, added more young talent, We'll see what happens, but I think the Colts, I wouldn't say it's a bad move for the Colts because you're getting an incredible player. I just think there would have been more value in pursuing the alternate route that I proposed. And again, back to Phillip Rivers, 
I think this is the last year we see of a high-level product, not high-level, a productive Philip Rivers. So we'll see how much the San Diego, or San Diego, wow, the Los Angeles Chargers offensive line was a factor in him as an overall player as far as how productive he can be this year behind a good line and on a team with a loaded defense. So again, to summarize, the Colts are going all in on the now. This is their splashiest move by far, going out and getting DeForest Buckner, spending a large amount of their cap, plentiful cap space with DeForest Buckner and Phillip Rivers. But at a certain point, even though the Rivers has the relationship with Frank Reich from the Chargers, at a certain point, they have to get the long-term answer. And it's got to happen sooner rather than later. And for the 49ers, I think they got great value in this move, trading Buckner for pick 13 and signing Armstead on that $585 million deal. So great work by the Niners, and we'll see how this works out for the Colts in the long term. Now, speaking of Javon Hargrave, let's go to the Philadelphia Eagles. Philadelphia Eagles coming to this offseason with two major needs, corner and wide receiver. They miss out on Byron Jones. They signed Javon Hargrave, a high-level, as we mentioned, interior defensive lineman, three years, $36 million, $29 million of that guaranteed. I mentioned all the statistics just now, but when you think of this interior of the defensive line that the Eagles now possess, you have Fletcher Cox, you have Javon Hargrave, and if he's healthy, you have Malik Jackson as well. So the Eagles now have a very, very strong presence as far as the interior of their defensive line is concerned. Looking specifically at Hargrave's contract figures, again, this is all per over the cap. The Eagles, they really, so we have a small cap number in 2020 of only 3.45, 2021 of 15.2, 2022 of 15.45, 2023 of 4.9, signing bonus of 11.75 million, 26 million, fully guaranteed, excuse me on that one. Um, and we look at Hargrave here, really if they want to, if they need to cut Hargrave, this comes before 2022, at that point, dead money of 7.35 million would incur cap savings of 8.1 million. 2023, where it's only a 4.9 cap number, 4.9 would be the cap number, no cap savings one way or the other. They would have a cap penalty of 22 million before this year and 7.35 million before 2021 if they were to cut him. So we're looking here at DeForest Buckner being Eagle at minimum through 2021, I think through 2022 as well. So looking at Hargrave, I, again, I mentioned the fact, all of those stats I just mentioned, he's an elite level or very high level interior presence on the defensive line as far as the pass rush is concerned. You pair that with Fletcher Cox as one of the best in the league. We talk about these top three defensive linemen in the league. I mentioned DeForest Buckner. Obviously, Aaron Donald. Fletcher Cox is in that range. Fletcher Cox is up there. And Malik Jackson, if he's healthy, is a productive, high-level defensive tackle as well. So even though it wasn't a spot of need, I like this move a lot for the Eagles getting Hargrave. This Hargrave signing to me, the dollar figures, the situation, all of that, I think this might be one of my favorite signings of the entire free agency period this thus far. And then, of course, even though they missed out on Byron Jones, the Eagles come out there and they get Darius Slay in a trade with the Lions, giving up a third and a fifth, getting in Darius Slay and signing him to beat out um, Byron Jones' recently set cornerback record contract on a per-year basis. 
They signed Byron, or Darius Slade to a three-year deal, $50 million, $30 million of which guaranteed, giving him a very close to $17 million per year uh, salary, overall cap number. Darius Slade is a very good corner. Byron Jones is better than him. I think Darius Slay is an elite corner as well. I would call him elite. Byron Jones is better. But again, this Eagles team was desperate for some sort of cornerback help, an elite level corner, a number one corner, a shutdown corner to put into this defense. And to get that corner for a third and a fifth when the Eagles are loaded with extra draft picks, played the comp pick game at a great level like they do every single year, That's great value for the Eagles. They're getting an elite-level difference maker at a position of incredible, incredible need. Looking at the Eagles' draft now after this trade, they have their own first, their own second. They still have a third because of the comp third, as I mentioned. They have a fourth. They have a comp fourth. They have another comp fourth. They have the Patriots' fifth, and they have the Falcons' sixth. So they were dealing from an area of surplus as far as the third round was concerned and the fifth round was concerned. And so I think this is an absolutely exceptional trade for the Eagles. I I know Darius Slade didn't have an elite-level season uh, on par with his prior years last year. However, I think we're looking at an elite-level corner here, and I think the value that they got as far as the assets they had to give up, I thought made this trade an incredible value, as I mentioned. As a whole for the Eagles, you know, corner. They got an elite-level corner to fill that greatest need. Really like the move of Javon Hargrave. And they're sitting there at pick 21 in this draft. Justin Jefferson, to me, is their guy. Should be their guy at that pick here at 21 in this draft. In this loaded wide receiver draft, they should be able to fill that need in the draft. So the Eagles going out there, filling the number one need, have the draft to fill their number two need, and get an effective disrupting presence on the interior of the defensive line to pair with Fletcher Cox on a reasonable contract. I'm a fan of this offseason for the Eagles. I think they did a great job with the moves that they have made thus far. Moving away from the Eagles, let's go to the Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers signing Teddy Bridgewater. Now, we knew that the Panthers were... Basically, this was a situation where if the Panthers were confident or other teams were confident in Cam Newton's ability to pass a physical... Or if the Panthers were able to get, you know, a fourth-round pick in a trade for Cam Newton, he'd have been traded by this point. That clearly did not happen. Clearly, it was also seen that the Panthers were ready to turn a corner and start a new chapter at that quarterback position. Now, it was weird. The Panthers seemed to kind of be positioning themselves for a a full teardown, kind of like the Dolphins last year. You know, they were shopping Trey Turner all right, that's a player you can go out and get some draft picks for. Instead, they trade him for an often injured, expiring left tackle in Russell Okung, who isn't as good of a player. You know, Turner on the interior of the defensive line, Okung a tackle, but he's on a one-year deal and he's not as good and he's often injured at this point in his career. So that was an odd trade. They let James Bradbury walk, and you would think that this team is positioning itself to, you know, you could throw Kyle Allen out there or Will Greer out there for another year, And you could put yourself in position to be in the Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes in the draft. And it was said that at the Combine, it was discussed that basically any Panther was available for trade. Yet now, they have signed Bridgewater, who I like a lot. I like Teddy Bridgewater a lot. I think he's a very safe quarterback. 
you know, he's obviously limited in upside. He's not going to be throwing the ball down the field. Teddy check down. I think he's a very safe game manager. I think he's a solid, if not spectacular, starting quarterback. Nothing special, but solid. You can get by on a solid Teddy Bridgewater as your contract. Went 5-0 at the Saints last year. I think Teddy Bridgewater can win with a good team around him and is a solid but nothing special quarterback. Now, for the Panthers, what I think is this. Their objective at this point should be to position themselves in the draft to get the long-term franchise quarterback with a high draft pick with a high-level quarterback prospect. Teddy Bridgewater being your quarterback makes your team better, which takes your pick away from, let's say it would have been top five, Teddy Bridgewater brings you out there to a top 10 range now. In theory, you know, Teddy Bridgewater is a good quarterback. Doesn't Teddy Bridgewater make your draft pick not as high and therefore make your ability to get that high-level quarterback prospect in the draft lessens that ability? Teddy Bridgewater takes you further away from the top of the draft, which is where you need to get that long-term quarterback answer. You know, I I don't you know basically looking at the contract three for sixty three, um, basically the way it's structured, this is a two year forty million dollar deal. So they're not necessarily tied to Teddy Bridgewater. They can still pursue a quarterback in the draft in the year two years that Teddy Bridgewater is their quarterback. They will not be impeded from doing so based off of how they can get out of the deal after two years with no issue. Or they could get out of the deal after one year if they wanted to, and even though they'd incur a good amount of dead money, would still have a small amount of cap savings. They're not they're not maximizing their ability to get that franchise quarterback in the draft. And I think they're kind of disjointed in the approach that they're trying to take to this team and the team building process. You know, you're you bring in Matt Rule, a program builder. We saw it at Temple, shout out to the city of Philadelphia, 215. We saw it at Baylor. He built an incredible program at both schools, especially at Baylor. Brought in Joe Brady as his offensive coordinator. Teddy Bridgewater has familiarity with Joe Brady. It's just, to me, a kind of symbol of the fact that you have general manager Marty Herney, who was from the prior regime, probably looking to save his job at this point, and you have Matt Rule who's looking to start anew. And you have an owner in David Tepper who wants to move forward and do innovative things and incorporate analytics and expand the front office, yet you have a young coach who's a program builder and an old guard general manager. And those two things don't necessarily mesh in a process standpoint. So basically, to summarize, my thinking is, what exactly are the Panthers going for here? They clearly are still interested in getting that long-term franchise quarterback in the draft, based off of the fact that they can get out of Bridgewater's deal after two years with no issue or after one year with a small amount of savings, but they're getting themselves a solid quarterback who's going to make them a respectable level team. Looking specifically at the Bridgewater contract, two year, or three years, $63 million, $33 million guaranteed. The way we look at it is this. If they cut him prior to year two of the contract, they would get a $20 million dead money total on their books, but would save $3 million towards the cap. I mentioned this deal is basically two for 40. Prior to year three, they would only incur $5 million in dead money and would save $21 million towards the cap. This is a two-year deal. 
So I think the Panthers really need to kind of figure out what it is that their objective is because I thought they were in prime position to be in this race for Trevor Lawrence. Now they have a solid veteran quarterback at the helm who is a respectable, solid quarterback, a good game manager. You know, I think what's going to happen is they went 6-10 and 10 last year. With Kyle Allen as their quarterback, they ended up here with the 7th pick in the draft. I think we're probably looking at a team in the 7-11 to 11 range, 8-11, to 8-12 to range of this draft. Yeah, 8-12 to 12 range of this draft. I don't think this is a team now with Teddy Bridgewater at the helm that is positioning itself to draft Trevor Lawrence in the draft this coming year. The Trey Turner trade, trading him for Russell Okung, when you could have gotten good draft value back for him, that trade made no sense to me and showed the fact that they're not going all in on process of going through the draft, amassing draft picks, gaining flexibility, and building out the team solely through the draft. So I'm just confused on what their overall process is here. I'm not discounting or being negative towards Teddy Bridgewater at all. I think Teddy Bridgewater is awesome. It's a great story to root for, and I think he's a solid quarterback. I just think that this was not the right team to sign him to this deal. And it's also interesting, looking at the situation now, I had earmarked Tampa Bay for Teddy Bridgewater before free agency. Obviously, they got Tom Brady. Just based on the lay of the land, I don't think a three-year, $63 million deal was out there for Teddy Bridgewater in any other form besides this deal here with Carolina. So, again... They're not tied to Teddy Bridgewater, have a small out before year two. This is basically a two-year, $40 million deal. They have a huge out before year three. They can keep pursuing the quarterback in the draft. They have a solid quarterback that knows Joe Brady's system, but they're not maximizing their ability to get the best quarterback that they can in the draft, which really, to me, should be their whole organizational focus. Let's move past Teddy Bridgewater, and let's just look at some specific teams here and their moves in the offseason. Let's start with the New York Giants. And I just want to discuss their three biggest moves here. Uh, tagging Leonard Williams, signing James Bradbury, and signing Blake Martinez. So let's start with Blake Martinez. I do not like this move. They signed Blake Martinez on a three-year deal for $30 million. I think with Blake Martinez, the problem is he's not good in coverage. He's great against the run. He's going to amass a ton of tackles. But if you're looking out there and Corey, Middle- Corey Littleton is getting a three-year deal at $11.75 million a year, and you're paying Blake Martinez a three-year deal at $10 million a year, why would you not pay $2 million a year more to get Littleton, who's a better player, and is very, very good in pass coverage? You know, I know that Dave Gettleman loves defending the run, loves his hog mollies on the offensive and defensive lines. You can't have these off-ball linebackers that you're devoting a lot of resources to who can't be effective in coverage. And that's what they did here with Blake Martinez. James Bradbury, I think, was a great move. Three-year deal for Bradbury at $45 million. Talking about the three-year figure, Bradbury's only 26 years old, so he'll be able to get out there in his prime still and potentially get another big deal at that 29 years old age. But looking at Bradbury's deal, three years, $43.5 million, $31 million guaranteed, by year three, they would have no dead money and would save $13.5 million by cutting him. I think he's making it through all three years of this deal. I look at James Bradbury. He's a big body corner who you can put 
against the other team's best receiver, and he's going to shadow them and be able to lock them down. He did well in that NFC South division, matched up with Mike Evans, matched up with Michael Thomas. He is very effective, matched up against Julio Jones. He's very effective against elite-level wide receivers. Not the fastest. You know, DeAndre Baker, the same thing. DeAndre Baker, again, as I've said before, they picked the wrong cornerback at that spot. Byron Murphy, Rocky Sin, Greedy Williams all were there. DeAndre Baker, the same thing. Not necessarily the fastest corner. So maybe that's a concern. But again, we talked earlier in part one about the Dolphins. Corner is the most important position on the defensive side of the ball. And the Giants just got themselves a true number one corner who's a big body player who can shadow the other team's best receiver. Only a three-year deal for 45 or $43 million with $31 million guaranteed. I love this move for the Giants. This is a slam dunk move. Gettleman going out there and getting a player that he drafted in Carolina. And then tagging Leonard Williams. This was a terrible move. This was a saving face after that awful trade, giving up a third and a fifth to get Leonard Williams on an expiring contract during the season. Now, I guess we can positively frame this in saying at least they didn't sign him to a long-term contract. Leonard Williams had 0.5 sacks last year. 0.5. And he was tagged at a high number. Take away that tag for Leonard Williams based on the fact that Jadavian Clowney's market is not developing to the area or level he wanted it to. That $16 million a year or so figure could have been given to Jadavian Clowney on a two- or three-year deal. That would have been a better move for this team. Tagging Leonard Williams was just saving face after you gave up so much to get him, when that never should have been a move made in the first place. A high-quality third-round pick and a fifth for an expiring contract. The guy is good at getting into the backfield, but he doesn't finish. He doesn't complete the play. He doesn't make a significant difference to your defensive line. He's a good player, but he had 0.5 sacks for the whole season. That's not a player you trade a third and a fifth for on their expire on the last year of their contract when they're an expiring, nor is nor is it a player you franchise tag and take up six, uh, over $16 million of your space in offseason in which you have a significant amount of cap space. This is a sunk cost. They should have recognized that and move on and moved on. Unfortunately, they did not. So looking at the Giants, three big moves, I think they missed in not paying up to get Corey Littleton instead of Blake Martinez. Martinez is a tackling machine, good against the run, not great in coverage. Littleton would have been a much better add for not that much more per year. James Bradbury, a beast, a shutdown corner, a big body corner. Put him against the other team's best wide receiver. He'll have no issue. And then Leonard Williams, again, we just mentioned it. They should have just let him walk. It's a sunk cost. So overall, Giants one for three on their big moves in this critical offseason for Dave Gettleman, which if things don't go well this coming season again, I think that might be the end of the line for Dave Gettleman as GM of this team, but we shall see. Moving away from the Giants, let's go to a team who I actually really liked the offseason that they had or have had so far, and that's the Las Vegas Raiders. John Gruden and Mike Mayock, you know, I know as I'm recording this podcast, they just signed Nelson Aguilar. We're not, go- we're not going to acknowledge that move. Let's just leave that move as it is. Looking at the Ra- Las Vegas Raiders, their biggest needs coming into this offseason, wide receiver and corner. They're sitting there in the draft with two premium picks, 
pick 12, and pick 20. They missed out on Byron Jones, who it was said they were in the running towards the end with Miami and all these other teams for him. But look at the moves they made. Corey Littleton, I just mentioned, three-year deal worth up to $36 million. So we're looking at either an $11.75 million a year figure or a $12 million a year figure. Looking and taking into account the fact that Blake Martinez got $10 million a year, I think this is a slam dunk move. We look at Corey Littleton, he's exactly what you'd want in an off-ball linebacker right now. Effective against the run, effective when rushing the passer and applying pressure, and great in coverage. For PFF last year with a minimum of 50%, uh, playing 50% of defensive snaps for their team, Corey Littleton was the 7th rated linebacker in the league as far as PFF grade is concerned. Looking specifically at the Raiders, the Raiders had the 29th ranked pass defense as far as pass coverage grade is concerned per PFF in the league last year. Raiders linebackers last year had a 38.4 coverage grade and allowed the league's second highest passer rating of 20, of 122 of any linebacker group in the league. So we put that together. This is a team that not only needed to address that inside linebacker spot, but as I mentioned, you need to have off-ball linebackers who can be effective in coverage. It is imperative in 2018 and 2019, Corey Littleton's pass coverage grades were respectively 83.1 and 82.3 as far as PFF is concerned. So we look at Littleton, he fills every single box that you want an inside linebacker to fill. And then not only that, they didn't just sign Corey Littleton to fill that need at linebacker, inside linebacker. I'm going to butcher the last name here, but Nick Kwiatkowski former inside linebacker for the Chicago Bears. They signed him to a three-year deal for $21 million. He is a beast as far as run defense is concerned. Per PFF, 74.7 run defense grade, 82.3 pass rush grade, 29 quarterback pressures, and four sacks. Going back to Littleton again real quick, Littleton had the ninth highest war amongst linebackers in the league in 2019. So in Kwiatkowski and Littleton, you're fortifying pass coverage, you're fortifying your run defense, you're getting linebackers that contribute in the ways that you need your interior off-ball linebackers to produce in. This was a team who other teams were able to pick on in the middle of the field in coverage as far as their linebackers were concerned. They have now addressed that with the best possible remedy they could in Corey Littleton and further bolstered that position with Nick Kwiatkowski. Moving past the linebacker spot, Eli Apple signed him at that cornerback position. Again, cornerback, a big position of need. I like this signing for the Raiders. Moving past him, look at the quarterback spot. Marcus Mariota. As far as Mariota is concerned, I think, I think people want to sort of take the idea of Marcus Mariota as a reclamation project. They really want to see if the idea that everyone has of Marcus Mariota can become the reality Mike Mayock absolutely loved him in the pre-draft process when he came out in the draft, went second to the Titans. Jameis Winston went first. I think the reality is he's a backup quarterback who has some upside. And if you're the Raiders, you know, you're not committing to getting a long-term franchise quarterback answer. Obviously, Derek Carr is not that, but you're not committing to 
getting a long-term quarterback answer. So what you're doing is even though you have Derek Carr in place, you're not crazy about him. You're getting a backup behind him who has more upside than a traditional backup is concerned and is someone who can be a pretty competitive backup behind Derek Carr. I'm not that crazy about Derek Carr at this point. I think there is upside there with Mariota. We'll see if that can be unlocked, but I think at this point, the idea of Mariota is better than the reality. I think he's a backup, has upside to him. You can put him in there in certain packages if you want, but I still think that Derek Carr is the starting quarterback for this Raiders team. I don't think Mariota threatens that. However, it's going to come to a point at some point in time, the Raiders are going to need to get that long-term franchise quarterback answer. I think they'll be an improved team this year. All of these additions, Eli Apple, Jeff Heath, Eric Cush they just signed, Nelson Aguilar they just signed, not going to get into that, Corey Littleton, Nick Kwiatkowski, Mariota, Carl Nassib, Jason Witten. You add all of those guys, that is a busy offseason. This is going to be a better team signing all those players, adding probably CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, or Henry Ruggs at pick 12, potentially adding maybe someone like a Christian Fulton or CJ Henderson or a Trayvon Diggs at pick 20. This is going to be an improved team this coming year. However, the fact of the matter remains, this team is still looking for its long-term answer at the quarterback position. I mentioned all those signings just now. Let's just get into it. I really like the Carl Nassib signing. I liked him when the Browns drafted him out of Penn State. John Dorsey cut him. He went to Tampa. He was solid. I think the Raiders did pay a little bit too much. Three years, $25 million, 17 guaranteed. You know, we talk about rotational edge rushers. I think Carl Nassib is a number three edge guy. I don't look at him as a number two edge starter. They paid him a pretty handsome amount to be that guy as a rotational edge. You know, we look at this pass rush that the Raiders have. Cleveland Farrell, they picked fifth overall in the draft. Max Crosby had a great, great season. As I touched on in my discussion on Shaq Lawson in the first podcast episode, Max Crosby had a very, very good season last year. The Raiders have shown that they can find talent in the draft. And now we're looking at their edge rusher group. You're adding Carl Nassib to this group with Cleveland Farrell, with Max Crosby. On the interior defensive line, you have Maurice Hurst. They also signed for the interior of their defensive line, Malik Collins, which was another signing that I liked as well. They're improving this defensive line. You have Malik Collins, you have Maurice Hurst, you have Cleveland Farrell on the outside, you have Carl Nassib on the outside, you have Max Crosby on the outside. We'll see what happens with Arden Key. You've added Corey Littleton, you've added Nick Kwiatkowski, Trayvon Mullen you drafted in the second round last year, Eli Apple you just signed, he can be the other side of the field's corner. Jonathan Abram coming back from injury, signed Jeff Heath. You have LaMarcus Joyner on this team as well. There is a lot of quantity of talent on this defensive side of the ball for the Raiders. Offensive side of the ball, they have the big money contract for Trent Brown on the offensive line. They had Colton Miller, who they drafted um, in 2000, and I guess that was 2018 at this point. And then also in the interior, there were rumors about them trading Gabe Jackson has not come to fruition at this point. Rodney Hudson, who's one of the best centers in the entire league. And then Josh Jacobs, who had a great rookie season. This team basically, at this point, Darren Waller, who had a breakout monster season at tight end last year. This team basically, at this point, needs a number one wide receiver, a true number one corner, and a franchise quarterback. They have depth across the board on both sides of the ball. Once they get that quarterback, 
once they get that wide receiver and once they add some talent at corner, I think we're looking at a playoff team that can really do some damage because there is so much talent on both sides of the ball for this team. I think John Gruden and Mike Mayock are doing a very good job at building out this Raiders roster. Next, let's go to the Cleveland Browns. Andrew Berry, new general manager, former um, high-ranking member of Sashi Brown's front office. Coming back, he was the went over to the Eagles in a football operations high-level role, was not allowed to interview for any other role besides general manager, interview for general manager with the Browns. He is now the GM of the Browns. All along to me was the best GM candidate to pair with Paul D. Podesta's candidate of choice and Kevin Stefanski. You now have organizational alignment from Paul D. Podesta to Andrew Berry to Kevin Stefanski. Analytical forward-thinking mindset between all three of them. When we've had Sashi Brown dealing with Hugh Jackson, John Dorsey in the analytics side of the front office being at odds, bringing in Freddie Kitchens when Paul D. Podesta wanted Kevin Stefanski as the coach last year, now you have organizational alignment. And this is a loaded team. I still have faith in this Cleveland Browns team. And they went out there this offseason, Jack Conklin. Jack Conklin, again, I think is a solid starting right tackle. He got a huge amount, three years, $42 million, $14 million a year. Austin Hooper, he's going to be a big value to this Cleveland team because Kevin Stefanski is going to employ a lot of two tight end sets. You now have Austin Hooper, who will catch a ton of balls, and then you have David Njoku as well. And then in addition to that, a lot of, I think, positive smaller signings. Case Keenum, I think, is a good quarterback to have in the room as Baker's backup. Familiarity with Kevin Stefanski from their time in Minnesota. I like that they took a flyer here on Carl Joseph, the safety formerly of the Oakland Raiders, now the Las Vegas Raiders, then the Oakland Raiders. B.J. Goodson, um, interior linebacker from Green Bay. Kareem Hunt, they put a second-round tender on, so he's not going anywhere. Andrew Sandejo, they signed as well. Lots of small signings, which I think are good work around the margins. But just looking at the big moves here, this team needs two offensive tackles. They needed to go out here in free agency, whether it was Conklin, whether it was trading for Trent Williams, whether it was signing Jason Peters. They needed to go out here, get a tackle before the draft, and then in the draft at pick 10, pick whoever the best remaining or of the remaining offensive tackles out of Makai Becton, Tristan Wirfs, Jedrick Wills Jr., and um, Andrew Thomas. They have Chad Conklin at that right tackle spot, and at pick 10, they will be able, in my opinion, they'll be able to add, I think at that point, there will be two or three of those four tackles gone. They will definitely be able to get one of those four offensive tackles at 10, filling what is their most pressing need, the two offensive tackle spots. Austin Hooper, Austin Hooper is just going to catch a ton of targets. And when you're running two tight end sets to have Austin Hooper and David Njoku as your two options, in an offense where you have Nick Chubb, you have Kareem Hunt, you have Odell Beckham, you have Jarvis Landry, you're improving your offensive line, you look at the talent on the defensive side of the ball as well, if the organization is aligned, if the coaching is effective, and Baker Mayfield can get back to the rookie Baker Mayfield that we saw the year prior to this, the Cleveland Browns have all the makings of a playoff team. Perhaps I'm a little optimistic here, but I am all in on thinking that this Browns team can definitely make the playoffs in this coming season. And I think the Hooper addition, 
and the Conklin addition based on scheme and positional need at the tackle spots and then scheme with the two tight end sets. I think we're both worthy and solid signings by Andrew Barry as the new GM of the Cleveland Browns. Real quick, I wanted to touch on the Dallas Cowboys as well. Amari Cooper re-signed on a five-year deal for $100 million. Wait, structured, this is a two-year deal for $40 million. It'll be two years, $40 million, and then they'll reevaluate it from that point. Washington Redskins apparently offered him a big deal. He wanted to stay in Dallas. But just looking at the Dallas Cowboys' overall spending here, Ryan Tannehill from an incredible, incredible, don't get me wrong, not discounting how great he was last year, but from a very small sample, got himself a four-year deal at a $29 million a year figure. The longer they wait on paying Dak Prescott, the more that price goes up. Dak Prescott, to me at this point, has to be at least a $37 million a year player. The Cowboys just got to pay him already. And then just looking at their organizational spending, they really messed up here not being able to retain Byron Jones. You can't pay a running back a six-year deal for $90 million and then also pay a large deal to an off-ball linebacker in Jalen Smith before you pay a true number one elite-level corner. Just positional premium here. They had it all backwards as far as the positions that they paid, the guys that they spent on. Jalen Smith is awesome. Great story, an incredible force as an off-ball linebacker. Zeke is great, but you can't be paying running backs big money. You can't be devoting big resources to running back. You can't do so especially before a high-level corner, an elite-level corner. They lost Byron Jones. I don't know what their objective is in the long-term here with Dak Prescott is. If he gets tagged two years in a row, he's just going to become another case of Kirk Cousins. The Cowboys just got to get it done with already before the price keeps going up based off of the quarterback market and potentially with a new TV rights deal for the league as a whole before the cap explodes and Dak could ask for $40 million a year. So the Cowboys just got to get it done already. They got to pay Dak. Let's look at the New York Jets. The New York Jets coming into this offseason, the big thing was this. They had to improve that offensive line. They desperately needed to improve their offensive line. They missed on Jack Conklin. Joe Thune got tagged, which was unfortunate because I think that would have been their big target. Graham Glasgow signed in Denver. Andrus Pete re-signed with the Saints. They were able to make a good signing at center in Connor McGovern. I thought that was a really solid signing. I'll give them that. They... Couldn't find a better option, so they re-signed Alex Lewis at the interior of their offensive line. You know, Lewis is solid. I don't think he's anything special, but he's still a starter-level player. So you have Lewis on the interior of your offensive line. They signed Connor McGovern. And then they signed George Fant. This, to me, was the weirdest, probably the worst signing that we've seen so far. Maybe not the worst, but it was pretty bad. Pretty bad. They let's let's look specifically at George Fant's contract. So George Fant, we look at George Fant and his tenure with the Seattle Seahawks. George Fant did not start that many games. George Fant is still a project. George Fant is a converted basketball player. And despite being a project, and despite being or despite being someone with not a ton of starting experience under his belt. The Jets went out there and gave George Fant three years, $27 million, 
with 13 million guaranteed. Now, prior to 2021, if it's a total disaster, they can cut Fant, only incur 2 million in dead money, and save 7.4 million towards the cap. Prior to year three, only 1 million of dead money and 9.65 in saving towards the cap. The Jets basically now, they had a desperate need to rebuild this this offensive line, basically buy an offensive line, and then go into the draft at pick 11 and see if you get CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, or Henry Ruggs because they desperately need weapons for Sam Darnold. Instead, they missed on Conklin, they missed on Glasgow, they missed on Andrus Pete, they signed Connor McGovern, which was good, Resign Alex Lewis, which, fine, it's, it's a body. And then they sign George Fant. So we look at this offensive line, and through free agency, which was supposed to be the prime outlet for them to improve this team, where they had to make major moves to improve significantly, I don't think they've improved this offensive line that much. They should have been able to attack this offensive line in free agency to a point where they can say, hey, We have a solid pair of tackles. We have a good interior offensive line. We're comfortable with this line. Let's use pick 11 in the draft. Let's get ourselves a wide receiver. Instead, they're now going to have to hope that one of those four offensive tackles, Werfs, Becton, Wills, and Thomas, is there at 11 to fill their other tackle spot when they need to address the wide receiver position and get a true number one weapon for Sam Darnold. I know that Joe Douglas doesn't want to go out and spend a ton in free agency, but this is going to be Sam Darnold's third season. The more they wait, the longer, the, le- the smaller the period of time they have to capitalize on his rookie contract window is. You know, that window is closing by the day. They're not going to be a team that is going to be a playoff contender when their franchise quarterback is on his rookie contract. There's too many holes to get to the point where within this season, the year after that, and the year after that, we're looking at a team who can really contend in the playoffs. I don't see it. They're too far off. Where this team's resources are allocated, I understand this was Mike McCagnin before they fired him after letting him run free agency and the draft. C.J. Mosley, an off-ball linebacker, getting an absurd amount of money for the position. Le'Veon Bell, a huge amount of money. You can't be paying running backs that big money. Not necessarily seeing eye-to-eye with Jamal Adams, their best player, last year. And now here in free agency, not improving their offensive line to the point where they needed to. We're looking at this offensive line now. You have George Fant. You have Alex Lewis. You have Connor McGovern. You have Brian Winters. Who's your other tackle? You have to address that now in the draft because you've missed out on really significantly improving your offensive line and free agency as you should have been able to do. This Jets team, to me, they're just too far off to really picture contention during their rookie quarterbacks, or their franchise quarterbacks rookie contract window. And I really don't know what the long-term, really the long-term realized potential is for this team. Very simple formula here. You go out, you basically had to buy your offensive line this offseason, and then you go into the draft and you get yourself C.D. Lamb, Jerry Judy, or Henry Ruggs to get a true number one for Sam Darnold. Now, neither of those things will have been able to have been done in conjunction with each other. 
moving away from the Jets, a team who I looked at and I was really impressed by their sneaky good offseason here, the Denver Broncos. The Denver Broncos picking at 15 in the draft, hopefully can get one of Lamb, Judy, or Ruggs at that spot. But looking at the moves that the Broncos have made, you know, they made the trade to bring in A.J. Bouye at corner. They somehow were able to get Jarrell Casey for only a seventh, which was a steal. Casey is still a very, very good player. Graham Glasgow, they got him in there on a four-year deal for $44 million with $25 million guaranteed. They tagged Justin Simmons. You know, I, I don't necessarily see the need for them to have signed Melvin Gordon for two years for $16 million with $13.5 million guaranteed. Seeing as they have Philip Lindsay, Lindsay, they have Royce Freeman until he's inevitably gone as a result of them signing Melvin Gordon. I just don't think they needed to spend on the running back position as they did having Lindsay in place, having Royce Freeman in place as well. But we still can't deny that Melvin Gordon is a productive, good running back. So looking at all these moves, even though you prefer to not spend at the running back position, Bouye, Casey, Glasgow... Gordon, Justin Simmons is retained, and then you can go into the draft and you can really let the board come to you. If you really want one of those three wide receivers, you can try and trade up, but you can really let the board come to you at that spot. So, you know, I'm not sure how good they would be this year, but I think this was a solid all around so far in free agency. This is a solid free agency period for John Elway and the Denver Broncos. The Green Bay Packers wanted to touch on them real quick. They're playing the comp pick game here. Somehow, Jimmy Graham got a two-year deal for $16 million. I, I don't get it. He, he's washed. I, I, the idea of him is better than the reality at this point. Blake Martinez went to the Giants on a three-year deal for $30 million. Brian Bulaga went to the Chargers on a three-year deal for $30 million. They replaced Bulaga with Rick Wagner, formerly of the Detroit Lions. They replaced their loss of Blake Martinez with Christian Kirksey, formerly of the Cleveland Browns. $8 million a year was a pretty hefty amount for Christian Kirksey, but it was only on a two-year deal. They had to fill that need, and they had to do so with a player who would not affect their ability to garner comp picks. So I'm okay with that two years for $16 million for Christian Kirksey. Wagner is not as good as Bulaga, but I think, again, factor in the fact that it does not affect their comp pick ability to obtain comp picks and he's a starting level tackle, I'm okay with it. I still don't think that the Packers have or will have through the draft and through this free agency with these moves with the comp picks. They're not necessarily, to me, elevating their ability to contend deep into the NFC. I think they'll basically beat the same level they were this year. But again, it's so smart to take advantage of this comp pick um, formula and to be able to obtain those extra third round picks or fourth round picks, or whatever round they convey as. And I like that this Packers front office is doing so, focusing so strongly on comp picks in this offseason. And then the last team here I wanted to discuss was the Jacksonville Jaguars. Shout out to AEW. The Jacksonville Jaguars somehow got a fourth for Nick Foles. I thought they were going to have to attach a fourth to Nick Foles to get off of Nick Foles. They tagged Yannick Ngakwe. I think it's really only a matter of time until he is traded for some high-level draft capital from someone else. He has clearly shown an unwillingness to commit their long-term. This team and their uh, high-level, elite-level defense basically gone. 
the AFC Championship game defense basically gone now. They traded Calais Campbell for a fifth-round draft pick. But the thing that I wanted to talk about with the Jags, they traded Calais Campbell for a fifth-round pick, as I just mentioned. They traded A.J. Bouye to Denver. They were able to get a fourth for Nick Foles. They're going to get a big return for Yannick Ngakwe as far as, you know, a high-level draft capital return as far as tag and trade is concerned, inevitably when he does not want to commit their long term. The only big move they made, Joe Sherbert, five years, $53.75 million, $22.5 million of that guaranteed. You know, I'm not crazy about going huge on off-ball linebacker, but I like Sherbert more than I like Blake Martinez. Blake Martinez got $10 million a year. We can do the math here on Joe Sherbert. Joe Sherbert got $10.75 million a year. So for points for $750,000 a year or more, I'd rather have Joe Sherbert, Joe Sherbert than Blake Martinez. It's a large yearly commitment, but I think it's a fine signing. Looking at this Jaguars team, though, I, I don't necessarily think they've earned the ability to be trusted with the ability to maximize this situation. However, they, to me, are the best positioned team to get Trevor Lawrence and are my prediction for the team that will draft Trevor Lawrence with the first overall pick in the draft in 2021. The Jaguars in this draft have their own pick, ninth overall. The first round pick coming from the Rams, 20th overall. 42nd pick in the draft in the second round. 73rd pick in the third round. They have three-fourths, 118, 116, and 140. They have two-fifths, they have two-sixths, and a seventh. So to summarize, two picks in round one. A pick in round two, a pick in round three, three fourths, two fifths, two sixths, and a seventh. They have an extra first in 2021 because of the Ramsey trade, and I think we'll be able to get themselves a high level draft capital return for Yannick Ngakwe when the time comes. So, we look at this situation. The Jags have major draft capital in quantity this year, major draft capital in early in 2021 next year, high-quality premium draft capital at that, an ability to get more for Yannick Ngakwe. So on paper, this is a team to me who I think will be in position to be the worst team in the league this year, is loaded with draft capital. So if they can really get to that point where they're the worst team in the league, can draft Trevor Lawrence, and have the draft capital to build out a talented, young cheap, long-term sustainable team that can win for a long period of time, potentially, you know, let's say, I don't know, starting in 2023 or 24, they amass a ton of draft picks here in 20 and 21, they make smart moves in 22 and 23, and in the mid-2020 period, this is a team that has a lot of young talent, has a lot of talent across the board, and can potentially be a playoff team. That's the best case scenario for this team. And if they can get Trevor Lawrence and maximize this stock of draft capital, it's a realistic scenario. I don't know how much I trust their front office to get to that point, but the fact of the matter is this. The Jaguars are loaded with draft capital, probably have a very strong chance of being one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the league this year, to get a franchise quarterback in Trevor Lawrence in this coming draft. So to me, it is not being talked about a lot, and perhaps I am overestimating the abilities of their front office, but I think there is a chance that the Jacksonville Jaguars 
in the next five years could become a long-term, sustainable, winning team full of young players and a franchise quarterback as a result of their draft capital this year and next year and potentially getting Trevor Lawrence at the top of next year's draft. And with that, that will be the end of the second and final part of my NFL Free Agency Recap and Review podcast series here on After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back here on Apple Podcasts and Podcast.com for more episodes of After the Final Whistle moving forward. Shout out to you, the listener. Follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. And as always, goodbye and good night.